Excellent. Hello, everyone. How are you this morning? All right. Are you ready to hear the Word of God? I'm sure you are. Excellent. And I'm ready to um, teach it. It's always exciting to teach the Word of God. Uh, regardless of where I am, I, I tend to, uh, I don't know when the habit started um, some years ago. I go out early in the morning. I didn't do it that early this morning um, on what I call my preaching run or walk. And, um, and I go Facebook Live. I know some of you are saying that's a bit antiquated, Facebook. Um, but some of us older people still use it. And um, talk about the message and where I'm going to be preaching and um, pray for me and even give a, a bit of a synopsis of the message itself. And it helps me early in the morning begin to think about um, what I may share. And at, time that, at times that message even changes a little bit um, from initially saying, here's the text, the passage, how I'll go about it. And uh, the Lord, uh, through the Holy Spirit, even... And those moments of preparing for it, thoughts come to mind. And even in preaching itself, I will undoubtedly uh, say things differently than uh, what my notes say, even as I teach now, um, because uh, one should be open to how the Spirit of God wants to minister to His people and not think that uh, what we have written out is inspired like the Apostles' writings. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it must be organized and thoughtful as well. The message I have for you is important. Um, from this standpoint, uh, the title is really our ultimate purpose. So we might even say fulfilling our ultimate purpose. Uh, over this weekend, as you have celebrated 11 years together, you've been challenged in different ways uh, whether it be in your own conversations with one another, uh, the opportunity that I had with the men to talk about living a passionate Christian life. And it seems like the wonderful times the ladies had interacting with just questions about life uh, that hopefully have stimulated you to think about how do we really serve the Lord with all of our might and with all of our strength and with all of our mind. And words that um, were encouraging, at least to me, they were when I heard the testimonies of different people in their journey, um, and I thought a bit more about the young lady that's still a student at San Jose and how she's grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ and how she's growing in the Word and the things, the habits that she's learned to grow. And there were just different perspectives uh, that were communicated, and they should all funnel us to one purpose, really. One purpose, one objective, that we, that we be lovers of God, and as lovers of God, we will fulfill His purpose for our lives. There's a lot of confusion today about purpose. People um, discuss it. Uh, they make goals to fulfill their purpose, but sometimes that purpose is very secular. That purpose is very um, centered around their own personal aspirations as to what God has commissioned us to do and to be. And right away you still may be asking, okay, you've mentioned this word purpose several times and, and even this sense of our ultimate purpose. What is our ultimate purpose? And that ultimate purpose, yes, I mean assuredly it is to love God because that is the greatest commandment. But we are here for a reason. 
And we should obviously love God. It is the greatest commandment. And then love our neighbor as ourselves, because that commandment is likened to it. Uh, we can't say that we love God and we don't love our neighbor. But I would say our ultimate purpose, the reason that the Lord has us here, why we're on this planet, why we go to our jobs, why, we, why do we go to our places of recreation, why do we have family gatherings, that ultimate purpose is that we be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this morning as I was out um, walking around, uh, I made a comment that when we think about our purpose in life uh, and we were saved, why didn't the Lord simply just transport us to heaven? Why didn't he treat us like an Enoch? And it says of Enoch, and Enoch walked with the Lord and he was no more. Why don't we experience individual raptures and, and God take us away um, and that reason is obvious because he wants us here to live for him and that we can be lights in a dying and dark world. And if we aren't fulfilling that purpose, then it's questionable whether or not we love God and it is surely questionable whether or not we love our neighbor because the greatest thing that we can give our neighbor, the greatest way that we can serve our neighbor is to share with them the gospel message. How can I possibly say that I, I love you as a neighbor, I love you as a relative, I love you as a friend, but I don't want to share with you the thing that will give you life? You know, one wonders, and I think about this, um, when we get to heaven and there's a, a place where we will indeed have to give an account for our life that we lived here, and that's clear in the mind of Paul when he talks about the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ, which is distinct from the great white throne judgment. Believers will give an account for their lives. And you can look back and if there is, I'm not sure that there will be a, a moment in which we can, in an instant, reflect on our lives and how we lived them. And we can look back and see all the many opportunities that we had to be a people that would be a witness for others. And I think if I were to pause right now and to say to you, reflect on your life, maybe reflect on this week, reflect on this month, and say, were there opportunities where you missed your ultimate purpose? There have definitely been times when I could say that I've missed it and I've regretted it. Opportunities for me to share the gospel with someone and I didn't. And you may say, that can't be. How can it be? You're a pastor and you've been a pastor for many years. And you even teach in an institution that even train pastors. And, and maybe some of you may notice some of my travels where I'm off to going and speaking and talking to other pastors. How can it be that there are times when you didn't fulfill your ultimate purpose? That's the reality. You say, what do I mean by that? The reality of sin. The reality of sin for someone even like myself, where at times I don't have enough vision, I don't have enough passion, I don't have enough sense of e eternality that I would allow the opportunity to be a witness for Christ to pass me by. Now, I try to resolve in my heart whenever I see opportunities that I will be that. And especially when I travel, I try to resolve in my heart that I will look for opportunities for that. And I've had regrets. There are times when I remember being in an Uber on the other side of the world and then talking with a gentleman for about 20 minutes in a car and asking him about the city and what can I do here in Singapore and what would be a great thing to eat. And I remember him telling me that you have to have this spicy crab. We do it the best here in Singapore. 
And I never forget getting to my hotel room and I, I went to my hotel room and then I opened the door and I thought to myself, I have forgotten my purpose. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And there I was, again, to talk about leadership and to meet with the missionary and to explore opportunities. And there was opportunity even for my very existence in that Uber cab, and I missed it. Because I was organizing, I was thinking about my week, I was thinking about the things that I needed to do, and then the opportunity slipped right through my hands. So I want to encourage you, even as you celebrate this 11th year of existence here in San Jose, that you be reminded of your ultimate purpose and pursue it with passion. We, well, better state it, many of you, you've thought about your purpose in life and maybe from the standpoint of a career or education and you pursued it and you were passionate about it and you reached it. And maybe even now you see that you're on target, you're moving forward and where you want it to be in life. And that's good as long as we have this other purpose that we're pursuing as well. You would think failure, I would never want to fail a class. I would never want to fail in my career. I would never want to fail in my marriage. I don't want to fail in life in general. I don't want to fail with raising my children. I don't want to fail in my relationships with one another. But the scripture is clear that there is spiritual failure on behalf of Israel even. And right away, let me jump into a historical setting. And here is Israel. They're called to fulfill an ultimate purpose. And God said for you, I want you to be a light to the nations. I have distinctly called you out. And it began with God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And that great nation will be like the stars of the heavens. And beyond the the actual literal nation, the stars of the heavens representing all the people that will be saved through your people a people of faith. And of course, what happens with Israel? They're called eventually. They're called out of Egypt. God makes of them a nation. He gives them the law at at Sinai. But you see hundreds and hundreds of years of failure. They failed in their purpose to be a light to the nations. We look to Christ and we see the example of his purpose and priority in his life. Jesus Christ comes into the scene and he is preaching what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ understood his purpose and we are all called to be, in one sense, little Christ. We are followers of Christ. And so we look to that ultimate example and say, how can I live my life like him? How can I emulate the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfill my purpose? Jesus Christ, as he is reading the the word of God in the temple in Luke chapter 4, he is reading from Isaiah 61, and it talks about the spirit of the Lord is upon me that I might preach the gospel. Then Christ says, this has been fulfilled even in your presence. Here is my purpose in life, to be a preacher of the gospel. So if in fact that's our calling, to be like Christ, to fulfill our purpose, and we want to avoid the failure of an Israel and their poor example, we should, I believe, we need to preach the gospel to all mankind. And how must we do it? I believe, let's look at several texts here. 
We have to do it under compulsion. We must preach it under compulsion. Look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, we do it under compulsion. In 1 Corinthians 9, even in verse 16, and it communicates this in verse 15, it says, But I have used none of these. I am not writing these things so that it would be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And then he says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Some are questioning Paul's motives and why he's preaching the gospel. Um, is there some other reason that you do it? And Paul assures them that it is not. I preach the gospel because I'm under compulsion. And he even in one sense says, damn me if I don't preach it. It is in my heart. I believe it. It is my life. And what we must establish, I think, straight away is that sometimes we have this tendency to think, well, of course, Paul would preach it under compulsion. He's an apostle. Of course Paul would preach it under compulsion. He has been called personally by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he has been commissioned. Of course he would do it. But he's different. And of course you might do it because you're a called minister of the gospel. You've been ordained. You've had training. Of course you would do it. But that's an unfortunate understanding of our calling and our purpose. An apostle sets a tone, and he did for the church. And that's why Paul would say, emulate me as I emulate Christ. I follow Christ, and he fulfilled his purpose, and I will fulfill mine, so follow me. And as a pastor, I'm fulfilling my purpose. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because think about it, just from a standpoint of a, a, a strategy, how many pastors are there in a given church? And if we said, okay, you're the ones that are called to preach the gospel, we'll support you, we'll uh, offer you a salary, and we'll do other ministries in the church, but you're the ones that are to preach the gospel. Then from a strategic standpoint, you have one, two, three, four pastors in a church, in an, in an average church, and that church may have hundreds of people, thousands of people in them. And those thousands and those hundreds or that 120, they're the ones that are called to go and be scattered and to go preach the gospel. The pastor is simply an equipper, but he should also be setting an example as well. You should all be under compulsion to preach the gospel. Because I love my neighbor. And I love my relatives, and I love my friends, and I love the Lord, and I want to follow his example. So it must be done under compulsion. Let's also say this, it, it must also be done in view of God's character, in view of God's character. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes, we do it under compulsion. There's something that is burning inside of us, and, and we must let it out, if you will. But we also must do it in view of God's character. Um, notice verse 10. Uh, let's begin in verse 9, actually, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So we pause for a moment. 
And it's even a thought that's consistent with what I shared with you yesterday at the end of the celebration from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are to walk and be pleasing to the Lord. And just pause for a moment and think again. What a wonder that is that now you can be a person that actually pleases God, whereas before your life was the opposite without Christ. Now we can say, God, does my life please you? I strive to please you. Notice verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And here is this judgment seat in which we will stand. Then notice verse 11. And here is the sense in which we, we must preach, we must pursue our purpose in view of God's character. Verse 11, therefore, in view of the judgment seat, therefore, since we have been called to please God, and even going back further, therefore, since we now walk by faith and not by sight, what are we to do? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So what is he saying in view of God's character? What is this character? He says here, knowing the fear of the Lord, or knowing the fear of Yahweh. What is he communicating by this thought, knowing the fear of God? It doesn't mean that somehow, uh, because God uh, is this ogre in the sky, and I fear him, therefore I go and share the gospel out of some sense of trepidation uh, of what God may or may not do to me. Is this the fear of the Lord? Oh, it's the angry parent that's always dissatisfied with me, and I don't want them to be angry with me, therefore I will perform, I will do things. Is this the fear of the Lord? Because I said, I didn't say in view of God's fear, I said in view of God's character. If we have a genuine fear for God, it means that we see God as holy and righteous and good and kind. We also see him as gentle and we see him as good. And so we have a fear of God. And that fear of God should say to our hearts and to our souls that God is awesome. God is to be revered. God is to be respected. And I must honor him. And how will I honor him? I'll honor him by being someone that shares the gospel under compulsion. Why should I fear God? Because when you think about your life and what it was prior to Christ, and if you think properly about salvation itself, that now I have heaven awaiting me. If you think about the fear of God, you can think about what would my life be without the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I fear him and I want to live for him. So it's this awesome respect that we have for him that should motivate us to live for him. And as well, go back to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. So yes, we do it under compulsion. We do it in view of God's character but we also do it as a steward of truth. We do it as a steward of truth. Um, he has told us in verse 16, as we notice, that he does it under compulsion. But notice verse 17. We also share this as a steward of truth. Notice verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will... I have a stewardship entrusted to me. 
A stewardship. What does it mean to, to be a steward? Obviously to manage, to be responsible for. Something has been entrusted to you. That's been entrusted to me. So now that it's entrusted to me, I must live accordingly. I must order my life accordingly. Um, it's always wonderful um, to come to churches uh, where there are, I see wonderful families and, and kids, and the kids are growing the grace and, and knowledge of Christ. We pray, and uh, it was just such a sweet thing as um, one of the prayers that was ended and said amen to hear whatever the little guy that said amen at the end. I mean, I just love hearing things like that. What a joy. And as a parent, um, as now we have our five kids, but they're all adult age now, and now we have our first grandchild, and people are asking us, you know, what is it like to be a grandparent? We say, oh, it's great. I mean, it really is. We, we kind of see life now as here's another opportunity to be a steward of a life and build into that life. And my children, we saw them as we were stewards of their life, and we did the best that we could to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and now they are making their own life, and now our, our first child married, and he's making his own family, and now we have our little grandson that we you know, thoroughly want to spoil, because that's, that's a part of what you do, I suppose. But not totally spoil. We are not sort of, I should really correct that. We're not really the spoiling type, uh, but we have to um, nurture the best way that we can. Um, but maybe a certain degree of spoiling, I, th- I think so. We do sort of fight over who's going to hold him the most. So that's, that's, that's very interesting as well to see that. And of course, Joanna thinks that she can comfort him better than I can comfort him and I think that I can comfort better than her. And then we team up as we take care of our little grandchild. But I look at him and see, what? I have, a, be a, I have to be a steward of a life. What is my son and what will my grandson know of me as I grow up? What will he say about my life? Will I influence his future? That's entrusted to me. My spiritual gifts are entrusted to me. Am I going to nurture my gifts and try to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ even later in life? As I was talking with the men yesterday, I I talked about having a passion that must be continuous. I want to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and, and no amount of degrees that I have already achieved and none that I might see in the future, which I don't think I will pursue anymore, will change that. I want to be better at being a Christian. Do you want to be better at being a Christian? And why? Because you are a steward. And it says, yes, I preach it, but I preach it because the stewardship is entrusted to me and I must behave appropriately. And if I'm going to be a steward, here are several things that one must do if they're really going to be a true steward of the gospel. First, they have to be true to the message. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. One must be true to the message because a person can't say, I'm a steward, but yet they don't hold true to the message that God has placed before them. They must be a a good steward of the message. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. They must be true to the message itself. Notice beginning in verse 3. True to the message itself. So a church must not be a 
persons must not be um, true to a social church because we're not a social church. We're not a political church, a gospel preaching church. And notice the message itself. It says in verse 3, for exhortation does not come with error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted, there is that thought again, with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So pause there for a moment. Here's the thought again that we just saw from Paul earlier. He is entrusted with the gospel. So he said here to the Thessalonians, we are entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men. And there is always a temptation to please men. We see it in society. It has been true throughout history. It began in the life of the early church where the apostles themselves said, we must please God rather than man. The temptation to cower to society, cower to pressure is always there. Will you be a man pleaser or will you be one that pleases the one who saved your soul? And notice what he says, um, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And now we have to say, before the living God, look at my heart, God, and is there impurity? And if there is impurity, Lord, if you would remove it. Are there motives that are not proper? And would you redirect my motives? I want to live a life that is pleasing to you, and I will preach the gospel in a way that is not hindered by the intimidations of the world. Now, some of you may have been aware, perhaps not, several weeks ago, uh, a number of churches were asked to support uh, the churches in Canada because a law passed, which is C4. And um, think about that for a moment. If you're aware of it, um, overwhelmingly uh, passed in Canada. Um, and the language that they used was conversion therapy was not allowed and it is against the law to speak, to try to convert um, someone that is transgender or has an alternative lifestyle. And it could even be jail time that one could face, definitely a financial fine. And you think about that. And we were having conversations like that, at least in our elders meeting or uh, with other men that I've you know, talked with over the country, around the country. When is that day coming? And we thought, oh, no, it really is far away. Uh, no one would ever pass anything like that. Perhaps it's a couple decades from now, but here it is. And so churches took a stance to say that we will preach. Because why must we preach? Because we have to be a steward of a true message. It is one of the most unloving things you can do to not preach to someone who is caught in that lifestyle and to say to them, friends, there is truly an alternative and that alternative is to turn to the living God and you can be delivered from these temptations and the confusion that you feel in your body and even in your mind. That what Canada has done is really damnable. And those that voted for that will give an account before the living God because in one sense what they've done is they've taken away a, a life rope from those people to say, here's an alternative, grab hold of Christ and he can pull you out of that lifestyle. Regardless of how long you have felt these things and how long you've been in that lifestyle, there is a gospel message that can change you. 
So it really is deplorable that somehow we would say it's a loving act not to speak that truth to someone. If you're going to be a steward of the gospel, you must speak truth. And now we'll find out in the future which churches want to please God or which churches want to please man. And of course, those that want to please man, we can determine that they're not truly churches anyway at all. Now, I know, and here's the reality about sharing the gospel, and I think all of you will identify with this in some measure. Um, Do you find at times it may be harder to share the gospel at times even with those that you love the most as opposed to a stranger, a relative? It's Thanksgiving dinner. It's Christmas dinner. It's a time for a visit. And there's a relative that you know you need to share the gospel with. But somehow something happens in spiritual warfare, which is real, and you back away from it. You don't share it. And this is where we have to think about, that's an unloving thing to do. And sometimes in that moment, we fear men because we think, what will they, how will they respond to me? What will they say? They may reject you, but this is nothing different. They may speak against you, but this is nothing different. This is what Jesus Christ himself faced. This is what the apostles faced. This is what men and women throughout history have faced. And so we line up with them and identify with them. We must preach the whole gospel. We are stewards of truth. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians. And I want us to look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to spend some time there. Colossians 3. So, we must be true to the message. 1 Thessalonians 2, really 3 through 6. And then, we also must preach with a sense of urgency. We share the gospel with a sense of urgency. And from James chapter 4, 13 and 14, uh, James talks about the sense in which we must be careful about how we order our lives. We can't say that we're going to go to this place or that place because one doesn't know the end of their days. They don't. And we pick up on that similar thought, but say it a different way in Colossians chapter 3. Let me read to you uh, verses 5 and 6. Notice it, Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, he says here, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We have escaped it, but make sure that we're living in such a way that we consider our former life as dead. And I'm reading from the NASB here. And really it's better stated, uh, instead of consider the members of your body as dead, really what he's saying, put to death the members of your body. Live in such a way, have a passion against your past that you're putting it to death because realize that this wrath is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. And then notice, go over to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and what does he say here? Now conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, 
so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So what is the lesson? Uh, Make sure in your Christian life, the things that linger from your past, that you're passionate about, putting them to death. We're all in a process of sanctification, aren't we? We're all growing, and by the grace of God, there are things that we have put behind us, and there some things are further behind us than others. But if we become um, indifferent in our Christian walk, those things can begin to come to life again. But what we must do is look to the future and our purpose. And what Paul says here in chapter 4 is to make sure in your life you're behaving properly towards outsiders. Now, what's interesting, if you look at this in context, what has he done? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 18, he begins with how we behave in our homes. Wives um, are called to live in submission to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Children are to be obedient, verse 20. Fathers are not to exasperate their children in 21. Slaves and masters are to have a proper relationship one another that carries us all the way into chapter 4, verse 2. We should be people who are praying people. And then he says, now you're prepared to live properly with those on the outside. So you notice there is an order of things. And in a sense, what Paul is saying, make sure that your house and your personal life is in order before you can more effectively witness to those outside. And notice what I said, though more effectively, because sometimes what people will do, they will delay sharing the gospel with others, thinking that somehow they have to have all the answers and their life must be absolutely pristine. That is not the case. And if we were waiting for our lives to be absolutely pristine, no one would share the gospel. I would not share the gospel. Then there would be one person qualified to share the gospel, the person to whom it is written for, and the center of the message, the Lord Jesus Christ. There'd be one missionary, and it would be Christ. The rest of us are in, uh, how should I say it? We're being made new, aren't we? We aren't what we were, but we aren't what we are meant to be. And sometimes we have struggles because we would surely like to be more of what we're meant to be right now. We wish that we were more patient and more kind, but we aren't yet. We wish that we were bolder in our faith of some of the people that we read, but we aren't yet. We wish it would be, we would be more thoughtful to others around us, but we aren't yet. And that's the reality. Um, Joanne and I have been married, um, you know, in June, like 29 years. And we, sometimes we say that to ourselves, 29 years. And I look out, and some of you weren't even a thought 29 years ago. And that's, we've been married for that long. That's a long time. And, you know, we have some years to go, and, and we're making plans for the big 30th, which... Uh, yeah, that's right. That's an even year, so I'm the one responsible for organizing it. I think she purposely did that. When we first got married, we said, well, uh, you do the even, and I'll do the odds. And so for me, 10, you know, 20, obviously, 30, then 40, then 50. But 25 is a big year, I suppose, right? 25 is a big celebration. Uh, 29 years. 
Are we still growing? Who can give me the answer? What do you think in our marriage? We are. Are we still learning how to be as kind as we should be to one, to one another? We are. Are we still learning how to love? Uh, we are. And even when it comes to parenting, we think, oh, we miss that in parenting. And now that we have a grandkid, uh, maybe we can, with some more wisdom that we have now, we can pass that along. We're all growing. And that's why I said more effectively. You cannot wait for perfection before you become passionate about sharing the gospel with other people. You can't expect to know all the answers and have all the responses to people before you share the gospel with other people. And I've realized over the years, sometimes the the Spirit of God has already been at work in someone's heart and preparing them for the gospel. And it's that final thing that they hear when they cross over into faith. I remember... A young man came to me years ago and, um, and he just said, I, I just need to be right with the Lord. And he was right there. It was at, we were meeting at that time. I think back then it was called the Ramada Inn in their, one of their kind of um, banquet rooms. And he came up to me after the message and said, I just need to be right with the Lord. And I just stood with him right up front and just shared with him, do you see yourself as a sinner? I do. Do you recognize Jesus Christ as the only Savior? Yeah, I see it now. Are you willing to repent of your sins? I am. And I said, you may be saved. If it is sincere, I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. And I said, you can be saved even this moment. And he was. And he was in tears. And and that's all I shared with him. And he was saved. and, And I've seen him then grow and get married and have a family. And even later on, be called to the ministry. Now he's a preacher of the gospel. It was a simple, simple message. So don't be intimidated by those that may want to um, try to intimidate you. The simple gospel message is a powerful message. Amen? Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Man in his sin in need of a savior. And only Christ is the answer. So he says here, make sure that we're behaving properly towards those who are on the outside. That's our mission. We are to go out and to be amongst those people. But what will motivate us? I want to close with some thoughts. I I thought about sharing a lot more from Colossians, but I want to go somewhere else. What will also motivate us? Go with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. John 9. And then notice if you will. I'll begin in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And notice what he says in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Urgency. The opportunity is here. Make sure that your life is prioritized 
for gospel ministry. Life is but a vapor. And even in the book of Colossians, it's interesting that Paul says, I want you to pray for me that I would speak as I ought to speak. Now think about that for a moment. Here is the Apostle Paul, this bold man for the faith, willing to give up his life. He's saying, pray for me that I would speak as I ought to speak. He has a similar thought in Ephesians chapter 6, and there he says, pray for me that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now there's an implication in that thought, because Paul then is saying, I may not be as bold as I should be, pray that I will be bold. And I think that sometimes what we may be missing, we have a desire to share. We know we should share, but we need that boldness to share the the gospel with others. And here is Paul that is saying, pray for me that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. I'm obligated to do it, which takes us back to that first thought. He was under compulsion. A sense of urgency. Life is but a vapor. And this is why he says in Colossians as well, um, the opportunity. In Ephesians, it's worded differently. He tells us there that we need to redeem the time. The days are evil. Time is passing by. Isn't it interesting how we will tell people about, you never know what tomorrow has, you never know what tomorrow has, you never know what tomorrow has. Friends, you don't know what tomorrow has. But then sometimes we live our lives as if we know what tomorrow has. That's wrong. That's wrong of all of us. We have to have some sense of urgency. We have to have a heart for people who are facing eternal hell. And I think that sometimes perhaps we as Christians don't really believe in hell. We're like the liberal. Hell is just our own sense of this world in which we live. This is our hell. There's no literal hell. But we must believe in a hell. And there should be some sense, your loved ones, your friends, your co-workers, if you believe in a literal hell, knowing that they're facing it without Christ. And it has to stimulate your heart. Listen to the words of the founder, actually of the Salvation Army, and he said this. If I had my way... I would not give any of my workers a three-year training course in a college. I would put each of you in hell for 24 hours. The best training for earnest preaching that you could have. Think about that. And that might be interesting. Perhaps, uh, you know, even as I go back and next week I'll be teaching a class at the Master's Seminary to even say to them, and I do teach one of the preaching classes to say, um, forget workshop for the rest of the semester. If I could place you in hell for 24 hours, I think it would change your life. Hmm. Our relatives that I love and they're facing hell. And some I've told that. Neighbors that are facing hell. And some I haven't told. 
Maybe I need to go to hell for a moment. It's real. It's a place of timeless punishment. Hell. Jesus Christ, the most loving, caring, considerate person that walked the face of the earth said it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no recourse. There's no other opportunity. There's no prayers that will cause a person to leave hell. No effort. Once they go from this life to the next without Christ, without the covering of the blood of Christ, it is hell. It's a place of wrath. So as we think about the love of God and as much as He loves us, um, we have to also think how much wrath will be on them. It's a place of justice. They will give an account for their life and all of their deeds and all of their rejection of Christ. It's a place of real pain. In the parable, and what did the rich man say? I am in torment in this place. Real. And we say, what is our purpose in life? to be a gospel witness to others that you can be an instrument used by the living God that people can escape hell you think about hell and it says that hell was created for the devil and his angels but now man has fallen and men will join the devil and his angels in hell and hell itself Think with me, just in the future, in the book of Revelation, that it says death and hell will be placed into the lake of fire. It's hard. I wonder what we are really doing in our Christian lives if we don't see that as our ultimate purpose and being willing to do whatever necessary or whatever is necessary so that we can be a witness to those facing hell that's why in part George Whitfield said that one should never preach hell without tears I mean, you can study it. You can do lexical information on it. You can look at the differences in how people interpret it. But in the end, will it compel you to fulfill your purpose in life? That is your purpose. How you behave towards outsiders. That you would speak boldly as you ought to speak. That's your calling. If you really want to be a lighthouse, you must have that as a priority in life. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace that you show us.
I pray for everyone here that has heard this message, those that are true believers, they will be compelled to be lighthouses in their respective places of influence. Those that are here today, that they have not come to grips with their own sin. They have not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if they were to pass from life to death, they would be in hell. I pray that they would repent, that you grant them the grace to see their need. The gospel is free. The gospel is wonderful to those who see their need. We thank you for the privilege to have such a calling. In Christ's name, amen.